0: And there is often an awkward moment where I say, well, now that we're talking about, you know, Me Too or Time's Up or um, whatever, um, you know, let's expand the lens to include violence committed by law enforcement officers um, in these various contexts. And it, it often gets very quiet.
1: Welcome to voir Deer, conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School Today I'm going to talk to Andrea Ritchie who's the author of the book invisible no more And we're going to be expanding the conversation that has been taking place now for quite some time about police violence against black men To include the experiences of women trans folks and gender non-conforming people of color So here's our conversation I know it's extremely multifaceted, so I will defer to you on how you kind of want to break it break it down. At a high level, what do women's experiences with police violence actually look like? I mean, in many ways,
0: it looks very similar to police violence experienced by black men and men of color. So, you know, in New York City, for instance, the, the people are sometimes quite familiar with the data around stop and frisk and how 80% of people who were stopped and frisked in New York City were black and brown. Um, And that's true of women who were stopped and frisked, too. So the rates of racial disparity were identical among stops of women as they were among stops of men. But the story that was told about stop and frisk was that it was, you know, a practice that almost exclusively targeted young black men, which, which was then brown men, which was not the case. So similarly, you know, excessive force, you know, you see in the story of Sandra Bland. You see in, in so many that it was a young girl who was eleven years old recently who was tased. Um, that you see, you know, so she thankfully lived and wasn't killed like Tamir Rice. But there's physical force physical violence against young black girls, girls with schools, girls on the streets. Um, you see during traffic stops a violence like experienced by Sandra Bland, but also by women like. Breonna King, who um, was the subject of an Oscar-nominated documentary called Traffic Stop, you know, there's, where literally she's flung around, beaten, thrown to the ground, straddled by a police officer, thrown over the hood of a car in a way that looks very familiar, but the subject is a black woman um, who's not usually who we think of in that position. So I would say that um, you know, the kind of force that we saw police officers use in Traffic Stop and in so many traffic stops like that, looks very much like the force that police officers use against black men and men of color, and we're just not used to thinking of or seeing women uh, in that position. And then when it comes to fatal force, um, black women obviously are killed by police, too. Um, And what is perhaps maybe more surprising to people is that black women are the group that is most likely to be killed by police when they're unarmed. And they're the only group, in fact, for whom the majority of police killings take place when they're unarmed. So what that says is that while police officers may uh, kill fewer black women than they do black men, they're more likely to perceive them falsely as a threat than they are any other group. And so that says a lot about perceptions of black women and how they drive fatal force. So as I said, when you look at rates of racial disparities and stops, frisks, arrests, drug arrests, gang policing, you know, traffic stops. Those tend to be identical for women as they are for men, uh, and we do tend to see similar forms of violence. And then we see some gender-specific forms of violence, like um, sexual assault by police officers, which is overwhelmingly experienced uh, by women, trans, and gender nonconforming people. That doesn't mean that it doesn't happen to men um, and male-identified folks, um, but it definitely is something that is a very gendered and sexual form of police violence. So, you know, the the data that we have, and we don't have very much data because there's no, believe it or not, official data collection on how many complaints there are police officers sexually assaulting people. But the information that we do have suggests that it's the second most frequently reported form of police misconduct, but it's not the second most frequently talked about, including now. So that's what we learn when we look at policing through the lens of women's experiences is that there's more forms of police violence than we might otherwise think of. We also see different contexts of racial profiling and police violence. So, for instance, um, if you look at the rates of racial disparity in uh, prostitution-related arrests in New York City, 84% of people who are arrested for something called loitering for the purposes of prostitution, which basically means... Standing around with the intent, at least according to a police officer, at a profile that to be engaged in prostitution. Eighty-four percent of people who are arrested for that offense in New York City are also black and Latina. So we're looking again at some very serious racial disparities and racial profiling. One statistic for racial profiling and stop and frisk, you know, galvanizes a movement, litigation, um, national attention, and the other you know, doesn't to the same degree. It does among the communities that are affected, but not in a more mainstream conversation about policing. And I would argue that both should. And so that's one context. Racial profiling in the context of police responses to calls for assistance is another place where women of color and black women, um, particularly and indigenous women, experience disproportionate rates of not being protected when they call for help or being profiled as someone who's actually committing violence rather than being the recipient or target of violence um, and being criminalized in that context. Child welfare is another context that we don't often think of as a context in which policing is taking place, but literally police officers are both calling child welfare services um, in based on profiles and discriminatory policing and also enforcing uh, discriminatory child welfare uh, orders against black women and women of color. So you see different forms of police violence. You also see different contexts of it. Uh, and even if you're looking at something like the war on drugs, you'll see the kinds of things that recently were reported, I believe, in the Washington Post, which have many times before been reported, of black women and women of color being um, discriminatorily subjected to cavity searches and visual vaginal searches and forced um, hospitalizations and um, medical treatment in order to uh, make sure that they haven't ingested drugs at the border. And so we know that there's all kinds of violence and discrimination happening at the border, the Muslim ban, violent immigration enforcement, violent profiling of Latinx and black folks at the border and beyond, but we maybe don't think about how that manifests in gender-specific ways where black women and women of color are being subjected to these invasive, degrading, um, and very often completely baseless searches at the border, either for drugs or for suspected terrorism.
1: So I guess, what is the source of that invisibility? I think there's a number of... um, reasons.
0: I think, one, we have internalized kind of collectively, whether we're talking about the media, the judiciary, and even organizing movements, racial justice and gender justice movements, have normalized a narrative about what police and state violence looks like. It looks like the beating of Rodney King, and it looks like the shooting of unarmed black men like Devon Clark. Um, And therefore, anything that doesn't Fit into that, we literally don't see. So you can literally you know, see the beating of Sandra Bland on the side of the road or not, because it's taking place off the dash cam, but you, there's many other videos, for instance the Breon King video, um, of a beating by a police officer during traffic stuff, but because it happens to a woman, we almost don't register it, because it's not the Rodney King story, it's not the Oscar Grant story, it's not the Amadou Diallo story, and that's what we understand to be police violence. And we understand gender-based violence to be violence that takes place in the privacy of the home by someone who's not a police officer or stranger sexual assault by someone who's not a police officer. And so when we hear and see stories about police violence, police sexual violence, for instance, or gender-based violence by police against, even if it's physical violence against black women and women of color, people just don't see that as part of the larger conversation about violence against women or sexual assault. They see that as an anomaly, um, something that might generate outrage in a single case, but not as a systemic issue or something that we need to talk about as part of a larger conversation around sexual violence or gender-based violence. That's one thing. I think, secondly, just generally violence against black women, indigenous women, immigrant women, and women of color is just generally normalized in our society, and it has been since 1492. It has been since the first enslaved black woman was brought here in 1519. We know from jurisprudence that, and from looking at the black codes and other statutes, that certainly the rape of a black woman wasn't a crime at law until very recently, historically. Um, similarly for indigenous women, similarly for undocumented women or immigrant women, and, and or married women, or any number of groups of people. And so, um, and then even when that's not true, as a matter of law, it ends up being true as a matter of fact when people interpret and apply laws in ways that are reflective of those historical um, perceptions and narratives and normalization of state violence against black women, indigenous women, and immigrant women that was necessary to establish the United States as the nation-state that it is. So that is another reason. Um, And then I think the third reason is that confronting violence by state actors against women in our communities would require us to also confront violence by people in our families or our communities or our churches or our institutions or um, in ways that we might not be willing to do. So, for instance, confronting the fact that police officers um, routinely violate and abuse black trans women would require us to also contemplate the ways in which black trans women are routinely violated and abused by members of our community. The same is true for black women who are or are perceived to be involved in drug or sex trade or domestic violence survivors or sexual assault survivors. So if we if we call attention to the way the police violate women of color, then we're going to have to tackle and confront the ways in which that also makes them violent vulnerable to that also makes black women of color vulnerable to violence within our communities, and we're going to have to tackle all of it, and often we're not willing to do that. So it's just easier to, to not talk about it at all. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would say one, one more thing is that um, another reason that we're really reluctant to look at police violence, sexual, physical, fatal, against women of color, is that we have so deeply invested in the police and in law enforcement as the response to violence as, the, as, you know, the people who we want to, you know, be more involved in domestic violence, more involved in responding to hate crimes, more involved in responding to sexual violence, that it, it, it becomes an uncomfortable truth that the police that we are investing in as a response are perpetrating those forms of violence against often victims, often survivors, often people calling for their help. And that calls into question our society's entire framework for responding to not only domestic violence, sexual violence, homophobic and transphobic violence, but also mental health crises, and frankly, burglaries. A woman was just shot in New York City the other day by police officers who were responding to a burglary call. That's what we think police officers are supposed to be doing, and yet this woman, another woman named Charlena Lyles, who lives in Seattle, died in the context of that police response. And we need to figure out a different response to all of those things that will actually promote safety for women, uh, not diminish it and that's a very large challenge to again that we might not be willing to take on so it's easier to just look away
1: yeah I thought that was that reminds me of a, a story in your book about when you were speaking at the National Coalition against domestic violence um, well let me back up for a second um, I think it's a really interesting point and I hadn't really thought about it from from that angle before around you know, so many anti-violence um, movements and anti-gender-based violence movements have, like, historically turned to the police as the answer. You know, like mandatory arrest laws, etc. Uh, and so, I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that evolution and and the position that that has put women of color in. For
0: for many of these movements, whether it's the domestic violence movement, the sexual violence movement or the movement to challenge domestic violence, to, to end sexual violence, to end homophobic and transphobic violence, um, each of their trajectories have been quite similar, where they have turned to the state for recognition and legitimacy mm-hmm. and, and invested in saying, you know, we want more police response, we want more harsh police response, we want, we in some ways are measuring the value of our lives by how long someone will do in a cage for hurting us. Yeah, And so that, you know, that when police respond to an incident, um, now that they have to arrest someone, the research shows that they are likely to actually arrest survivors, and particularly survivors who are black, who are Latina, who um, may have defended themselves despite being the targets of a long pattern of abuse. Um, and certainly, you know, people who officers think are undeserving, like undocumented women or women in the sex or drug trade, or trans women. And so, in the end, those mandatory arrest policies have led to increased arrests of survivors, not um, necessarily of abusers. And it certainly hasn't decreased the amount of violence that women, trans, and gender non people are experiencing. So, the, the product of that investment has been uh, mixed at best, and certainly for many women, um, detrimental. But, in some ways, it just leads people to double down, and and or, as I said, sort of be unwilling to look at forms of violence that Black women are experiencing at the hands of police, including when they're responding to calls for help.
1: Um, one of the things that struck me in your book was the story about when you were talking at the conference of the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, and you you sort of raised this, raised this issue, um, and it. The room got kind of awkward, was sort of my, my take from the book. Um, and I'm wondering if, one, if, my, if I'm representing it correctly, and, two, if there have been other times where you've been sort of at, like, metaphorical conferences or movements or whatever where they haven't really known what to do with you or how to place um, advocating against, you know, uh, police violence against women of color... In in the context of their movement,
0: they can happen unfortunately quite frequently. And you know, most recently, I think, um, you know, people will invite me. People who see the connections, um, who I deeply appreciate and I'm very grateful to, will invite me to conferences about you know the state of women or sexual violence or um, gender based violence generally. And there is often an awkward moment where I say, well, now that we're talking about, you know, Me Too or Time's Up or um, whatever, um, you know, let's expand the lens to include violence committed by law enforcement officers um, in these various contexts. And it, it often gets very quiet and it often gets very awkward. And sometimes people say, well, wow, that's really, I'm sorry that happened to you or it sounds like very difficult work but there's a very real reluctance to take that up as uh, a part of a platform or an agenda to move forward. So often I might get the opportunity to speak and share information about it, but it doesn't get integrated into the agendas of, of current movements around gender-based violence. I think uh, that's changing a lot more quickly in movements um, around violence against LGBT people because, again, of the work of, Queer and trans people of color who are living and working and fighting this violence on the front lines who who are making more headway in sort of the conversation around we need a different response because black trans women women trans women of color are dying in in record numbers every year, and you know increased policing is only producing more violence against that community, not more protection. we need a different. Response And so I think, for instance, this Friday, the um, Transgender Law Center is calling for a moment of reflection and silence across movements, across um, communities, to really think about what do we owe black trans women, what can we offer to really actually put their safety at the center. And I would argue that we should be doing that for all of the women who are not currently protected by the current Way that we're approaching violence and and I would argue that's probably actually the majority and so let's let's as communities commit to figuring out something different but it it's still a conversation that will you know feel like the needle scratching on the record, or you know suddenly you can hear a pin drop or suddenly it's like I did something very awkward or um uncouth when I mention it because. And I think the power that law enforcement has um, is another reason that you know, even if privately, you know, organizers, policy advocates, policymakers would like to do something about it, they don't want to become the targets of police unions. And unfortunately, institutions that do come out strongly around things like police sexual violence, for instance, the the Civilian Complaint Review Board in New York City, um, is now the subject of a lawsuit by the by the police union, arguing that by taking on, you know, investigation of complaints of sexual violence by police, they've overshot their authority, and and they have no right to do that, and and suddenly you're defending against a vitriolic attack and lawsuit from law enforcement. And so I think many organizations, uh, particularly they're fighting gender-based violence and often rely on law enforcement um, for funding or for validation or for... um, assistance to their clients are very reluctant to then speak out publicly about all forms of law enforcement violence, whether it's the shooting of Mike Brown or the violence that their police officers might be committing against their own constituents and clients.
1: Can we just uh, take a second to talk about what, um, what sexual violence by police officers looks like? Definitely. Um, it looks like the full spectrum
0: of sexual violence in society generally, right? So everything from sexual harassment, street harassment, I live on a street in New York City that has uh, three public schools on it, um, with thousands of young people, uh, walking back and forth across the street every day. And, you know, I hear police officers telling young women they look nice to give them a smile that, you know, uh, you know, commenting on their body parts, commenting on their appearance. Um, And that's something that young women in New York City and across the country report quite frequently. There's one study that showed that two in five young women in New York City had experienced some form of sexual harassment by a police officer at some point. Um, And so, and then that can escalate to groping during a stop and frisk. In fact, young women in New York City call stop and frisk stop and grope because they feel that officers... One frisk them with no basis, but then two take the opportunity to feel them, feel you know their bodies in places that are inappropriate and where it's clear they're not concealing a weapon. So it's clear that they're you know um, doing it for some other purpose, and then and then sometimes that purpose is the very unlawful purpose of of trying to ascertain someone's gender based on groping their or or their anatomy or strip searching them, and you know that's a way in which police officers are policing the lines of the gender binary. That in a way is are sexually violative, Um, and then, you know, it escalates from there to, I could give you this ticket, it's three hundred dollars, or it's going to require you to show up in court for a whole day, find child care, take a day off work, whatever, or you could do this for me, right? And that the fact that broken windows policing, the fact that there's so many minor offenses from littering to disorderly conduct to unreasonable noise to being in a park after dark to You know, any number of things, there's so many traffic violations that a person can commit on a daily basis that it gives officers a lot of kind of tools to use in that way, right, Um, because it's expensive and inconvenient at a minimum to get a ticket for something and certainly getting arrested, especially if your children are with you, especially if you need to get to work, especially if that arrest will put you at risk of losing your housing or your job or your children, is a huge amount of power, arguably, I would say, as much or more power than people like Harvey Weinstein or um, others exercise over a much smaller group of women. And so um, that, that is a way in which police officers extort sex, and then they force sex, um, and literally sometimes at gunpoint, um, sometimes using the threat of force, and sometimes with physical force. So everything from sexual harassment up to forcible rape and, and everything in between. And in terms of who officers target, they're really careful to target people who they think won't be believed if they come forward. So for instance, maybe some folks have heard of the case of officer Daniel Holtzclaw in Oklahoma city, who stood trial for uh, rape and sexual assault of 13 black women. He, you know, targeted women who he called working girls, so young women he believed were involved in the sex trade, women he believed were using drugs, or at least believed other people would think were using drugs, young women, um, and women during traffic stops were isolated alone on the side of a road with no cop watchers nearby and no um, one to call for help, right? And so that's very typical, um, so the, the the top sites of police sexual violence are traffic stops and young people, um, and including young people in schools, which is extremely alarming when police are being, you know, flooding schools ostensibly to increase safety of students when, in fact, um, they're sexually harassing and assaulting some of them, as well as physically assaulting them. And then um, also Youth Explorer programs have been found, which are these community engagement-like you know, try out being a police officer in case you're interested in pursuing that as a career or want to serve your community. Those programs are prime sites of police sexual harassment and violence. Um, and lastly, and very disturbingly and, and sometimes surprisingly to people, police responses to calls for around sexual assault and sexual violence and domestic violence are also prime sites of police sexual harassment and assault. So there's many stories in the book of women who called for help because they needed, uh, you know, law enforcement assistant finding their daughter and instead were sexually assaulted in their home. Um, or women who uh, called for help in a domestic violence case and were sexually assaulted in their home. Or women who, you know, Angela Davis famously told a story um, at the first Insight conference, um on all forms of violence against women of color in 2000 of, you know, one time in her life driving down a highway towards San Diego and finding a woman by the side of the road who had been raped and then raped again by police officers who stopped supposedly to assist her. And I wish I could say that was just something that happened in Angela Davis's youth a long time ago. But in fact, a Kentucky police officer was charged with raping a sexual assault survivor as he was driving her home from reporting her rape to the police. So, that is means that if we care about ending sexual violence and we care about survivors of sexual violence, we need to pay attention to this issue. We can't turn away from it because it's affecting the very constituency we're saying, well, we need law enforcement to prevent violence against them.
1: So what would it mean then um, to no longer be invisible? And I, and I do want to acknowledge, I think it's the afterword of your book, um, has an interesting comment around... Invisibility and in like invisibility to whom, so uh, yeah, and that, to your point, like women have been organizing around these issues for a really long time, um, but to you know sort of taking taking the premise of the title of the book, um, what would it mean to no longer be invisible? I would say you know it's more than just adding a,
0: some new names to the lists of people killed by police i've noticed in the last um, you know couple of years that. Now, when people are sort of listing people who have been killed by police, they will add Sandra Bland's name. They might add another name or two of black women or girls who have been killed by police. Um So, and then I think people think, okay, that's where we've done it. We're not, you know, black women and women of color are, not, are invisible no more. But the demands that people are making, the areas and context of policing, the forms of policing that they're organizing around remain the same. And the demands remain the same. And that needs to, that's what needs to change. Whether you're at the level of, look, I just care about police reform. I just want to change the policies to make policing better. I want to have a better use of force policy in my community. Well, does your use of force policy in your community address um, force used against pregnant people? Because if it doesn't, then pregnant people are being tased, and pregnant people are being thrown to the ground face down, and pregnant people are losing pregnancies due to police violence. So if you care about just changing use-of-force policies to make them better, you need to look at the experiences of women and integrate their experiences into your demands. So that's kind of one end of the spectrum. Um, We need to make demands around police sexual violence central to our agenda. Um, We need to, both at the the agendas of gender-based violence movements and of police accountability movements, we need to um, think about taking police out of the equation um, or reducing the power they have over women, one, to extort sexual violence, but two, to commit violence and criminalize women, whether it's in the context of broken windows policing, prostitution policing, we need to take away mandatory arrest policies if they're resulting in more criminalization of survivors than assistance <laughs> to survivors. We need to really look at those different contexts and have those be central to our demands too. But ultimately, I think we need to really rethink um, how we respond to violence in the society, whether it's really protecting all survivors and particularly those who are most. Um, susceptible to be targeted to violence who are living at the intersections of multiple um, forms of oppression and who have never been protected by law or law enforcement in the United States and really say, what what does safety and accountability for violence look like for everyone and build systems based on that? It's going to be a lot harder than just delegating, you know, responses to violence after the fact to law enforcement It's going to require us really to to tackle the culture of violence and um, prevention and accountability in a different way in our communities. But that's actually what's going to produce less violence and more safety for everyone.
1: And then last question. When did did this type of violence start becoming visible to you?
0: Well, certainly when I experienced it, but I didn't think of it, as many survivors uh, don't, uh, as something that other people were experiencing. I just thought it was a really bad couple of experiences I had. Um, but because no one else talked about it as part of a larger systemic problem, I didn't see it that way either. Um, for me, I think it it became visible in the context of indigenous peoples defending uh, their rights and their sovereignty in 1990 in Canada, where there was a confrontation that was somewhat similar to Standing Rock. Um, between the, the Canadian Army and a group of Indigenous people protecting their ancestral lands, where police officers and Army officers were exceedingly violent to Indigenous women who were on the front lines and leading, much as they were at Standing Rock, where women on the front lines at Standing Rock said, oh, no, they were targeting the women. They were going for us um, and being particularly violent towards us. Um, so I think, for me, the the fact that the the, the violence required to sort of Um, continue to deprive indigenous people of land, water, and sovereignty requires specifically violence against indigenous women became visible at that point um, in a really stark way in 1990 because that crisis was taking place just a few miles from where I'd grown up. Um, And then I think right after Rodney King, you know, I was definitely part of the generation that was very much shaped and informed by that experience and the, the outrage and the protests and the sort of movement that came out of that. But in that time, in that I was in a community where black women were experiencing physical violence, sexual violence, strip searches on street corners, being shot by police officers, and being sexually violated. And black women were talking about that. Black women were organizing around that. But the rest of the larger conversation seemed to skip over that.
1: It sounds like you have been very meticulously documenting these incidences or examples of Police Violence Against Women of Color, so there's the book, but I know you've also, you know, you organize in a number of different ways, and I'm just wondering why choose this approach to change, um, and how you sort of see your work uh, situated into in a broader spectrum of activism.
0: I think I've never really chosen one particular approach. I think my theory of change is definitely that the people closest to the problem or closest to the solution, and that people who are directly impacted by profiling police violence definitely need to be in leadership of, um, uh, and and that their visions and experiences need to be at the center of these conversations and of the solutions, and, um, and that ultimately what needs to ground our work, and I learned this from Insight, um, Women of Color Against Violence, the organization that was founded in 2000 at that conference where Angela Davis told that story, was that... Actually, what we need to do is center the, the safety um, and sovereignty and self-determination and ability to thrive of black women, of indigenous women, of immigrant women, and particularly women even at the margins of those communities who are undocumented, who are in the sex trades who are in the drug trades, who are living with disabilities, who um, are in other ways, sort of living at the intersections of multiple forms of oppression and, and traditionally outside of our conversations. Um, and if we prioritize the safety of of those women, of those trans people, of those gender-nonconforming people, then everyone is going to be better off. Um, and that we have to... Every solution we approach has to be like, does this actually make this group safer? And It's not just safety and survival, but also the ability to thrive and exercise sexual, gender, reproductive autonomy. And then... You know, in terms of tactics, I mean, I don't think litigation and the law are the primary tactics or solution. I just think they are a tool within a larger set of tools uh, within bigger campaigns. So I think at various times I've used litigation as one kind of stick in the hopes that it would move another part of the equation or build power or um, shift Dynamics or reduce harm a little bit, but but ultimately it has to be about building broader-based movements and generating these questions about what really creates safety in our communities. So I did not go to law school thinking that I was going to argue something before the Supreme Court and justice would prevail, Um, and that has not been my experience. (laughs) Even though I've won a fair number of cases and and you know reached condition you know settlements that are satisfactory to my clients and in others. I think that what really is going to produce justice and safety um, and real change is, is, is communities um, connecting and transforming themselves and each other. Um, and that litigation can just be a tool to kind of move that forward or start a conversation or increase power or decrease harm or give people more room to fight for those things. Um, so I don't, I really don't think it's not helpful. It's, done it and found it to be helpful in a number of cases. I just don't think it should be the lead strategy. I don't think lawyers should be, are the experts in how to achieve justice um, and that we really need to be part of and accountable to larger movements of people who are using many tactics from, you know, policy advocacy to grassroots organizing to protest to, um, you know, any number of mass movement building strategies.
1: Great. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you for making the time. Oh, and thank you so much for your patience and your persistence and for taking the time to
0: do this. It's really, um, I'm really happy to, to be on the podcast and really grateful to you for the work that you're doing to make it happen.
1: Thanks so much for listening. That's it for this week. Please remember to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on. It's a really useful way to help spread the word and therefore to help spread Andrea's excellent ideas. In the meantime, thank you so much to the folks at Poddington Bear for composing our theme music and to Anna and Brooke Hopkins at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for always doing such wonderful work. Thanks again.